I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Titus and chapter 3. That's not necessarily a well-known Christmas passage, but it is an Advent passage. And that's way we'll begin and end our service this morning as we light our fourth Advent candle. But let me read this to you and then we'll pray, asking for our Lord's help to understand and obey His Word. But this is the book of Titus. It's a small little book. I hear pages turning. You can go past it rather quickly. It's only got three chapters. But this is Titus 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Christmas season, what we call the first advent, that you would leave heaven, come to this earth, stand in our place, take our punishment for sin, square our relationship by purchasing our ransom. And staying the wrathful hand of your Father against the sin that we've willingly committed. Lord, this began at Christmas. We thank you for your goodness and your loving kindness. We ask that you help us understand and obey what we read today. And that it make our Christmas this year mean less about us and more about you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to run through a portion of Luke 2 this morning, a more well-known passage of Scripture. You may recall a number of weeks ago I read a little portion out of a storybook Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible, talking about this child that had been born, the child upon whom everything would depend, and how that man and his predicament... His predicament caused way back in the Garden of Eden and having become sinful, the relationship between the creation and the Creator was broken. Something would have to come in from outside this earth and fix this for us. We couldn't fix it ourselves. And that began somewhat of our Advent season. We've been lighting candles each week. We light the last one on Christmas Eve this coming Wednesday. But what I want us to consider, and it almost has to be done manually, we have to think our way at times through the Christmas story because it's so easy to feel our way through it. Uh, because the Christmas season is so sentimental, so nostalgic, because it's wrapped up in so many feelings and smells and sounds, uh, it would not be hard in probably would go unnoticed that our mind could actually be hijacked by our heart. We'll just feel our way right through the season. And if you're like some Christians, about the time everything settles out 
and uh, everybody's gone back to their places. All of the wrapping paper's been torn from the packages and put into garbage bags. Uh, unless you're the type of family who just shove that into a corner and do that the next day. When everything gets quiet that afternoon, usually it dawns on the conscientious Christian that this probably was more about us than about him. It gets lost in the shuffle of such an emotional period of time. So to think our way through it and to focus on the why question of Christmas, we're all familiar with what happened. That's been taught to us. We've seen it. We've felt it. We've heard it since we were children. But why it happened really has to do with our eternity, which will last much longer than the certain number of Christmases that we each have been allotted in God's grace. So with that as our focus, just to keep in our back pocket as we work through this, I want to work through the what that's so familiar to us, but toward the question why. We'll try to answer that at the end. And that is a big why. There's so many different facets we could focus on. But maybe one or two will settle on before we leave and we depart. Some of you will see before Christmas. Some of you we will not. But let me say or read some more familiar passages of Scripture. If you want to turn there, it's Luke chapter 2. And uh, I'll be reading from the ESV, which might sound like a bad idea with something that's so readily memorized, so familiar in the King James Version, but there's certain words here that are put more clearly for the purpose of study, and that might help. Verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. There's a very important political figure mentioned in that verse. Caesar Augustus, and we know from history class that he was the first Roman emperor, and that's a special distinction, that because of the things that he had done, uh, defeating Antony and Cleopatra, this man Octavian was positioned to rule the entire Republic of Rome as one man, that's what Roman emperor means, though his real name was Gaius Octavius. He would have to do this through incremental power gains with the help of the Senate and the people. It was a long process. But Augustus was actually a more religious term than it was a political term. And this was where Rome began to actually assign deity to this man. For the known world at that time, most people would have answered Caesar Augustus, if you ask the question, who is God? Or a God, they served a lot of them. But he was certainly one among many uh, as far as the populace of the Roman Empire. In those days, as Luke says, almost paints quite the picture, in those days, Caesar was ruler of the world. And the historians tell us that the temple of Janus was closed. I don't know how much of a history person you are, but Rome had a god called Janus. It was the two-faced god, a face facing either direction. And it was the temple of boundaries and warfare. 
And for this part, during those days, the doors to the temple Janus were closed. They were only open during war. So this was under the period of time known as the Pax Romana, which was a time of general peace, and it would last for about two centuries. So there's no open warfare taking place at this time, and something would be able to be facilitated that in other periods of time would not be. And that would be a census. Let's take advantage of the peace and number everyone to find out who's who, where they are, and for purposes of taxation. And that's where we get to verse 3. And all were to be registered, each to his own town. Here we get specific. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now from the perspective of mankind... Uh, these two that were introduced to after a name like Caesar Augustus, uh, by comparison, really, they had no more effect on Caesar or Rome than any one of you or I would have an influence or impact on the President of the United States or the Queen of England. Uh, we pretty much go from the most significant human to some of the least significant humans, all in the space of just one verse, one or two. But that's not the only perspective we have on the story. Now, we're 2,000 years removed. We can look at the history and see what shook out in the coming years and centuries, millennia since. But if all you've got is the history book on your lap, known as the Bible, we could turn back to, you're familiar with this, you can if you want, or you can make a note. But in Micah 5, there was a prophecy regarding the same town that these, this couple was traveling to for purpose of this census decreed by the king of the world at the time. But you, Bethlehem, who are little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So yes, in those days, as Luke tells us, Caesar Augustus ruled the entire world. In those days, Caesar was not only considered emperor, but also God, or a God. In those days, a couple is making their way to Bethlehem to pay a tax and to fill out some paperwork. But what we learn from passages like this is the most significant person, or the more significant person, is not this fellow on the city of Seven Hills, but this couple and the baby that is growing in this young girl's womb. You kind of get the notion that there's something more going on than the people who live on this planet. That this story is being written perhaps by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Gods. Verse 6, while they were there, which answers a lot of questions and ruins a lot of Christmas cards. While they were there, they didn't travel in the middle of the night. Great with child. The time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And I love the marvelously simplistic way that Luke writes what we would hope would be many chapters over the course of a novel, perhaps. 
He's just as simplistic with the death of Christ as he is with the birth of Christ. There's a lot more details we would like to know. We focus a lot more of our attention on Christmas and Easter than the rest of the Bible. But Luke is very simple here. So that was the birth account, the first seven verses of Luke 2. From 8 down through verse 14 is the announcement. The, the scene shifts. This is another act, as it were. This also is very familiar to us. And in the same region, this is again ESV, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. There's a number of things that you could circle if you wanted to extract the dramatic out of these verses. And of course, there's a field day here for the imagination. But first is great fear. That's what fell on these men at the sight of this messenger and a, and a host that accompanied him. The angel said to them, fear not. And then he says he has good news. And the good news involves great joy. So great fear, great joy, good news, and an encouragement not to fear. And actually, if you were to put all the times we see the angels from the Christmas story, you've got to wonder if this is the same angel. If it is, he's got the same opening line each time. Don't fear. Why not? Well, because he's got this good news of great joy. So you could make a miniature sermon out of this, that to go from great fear to great joy requires good news. It'd be a good thing to write down if you've ever been asked on the spur of the moment to give a devotional around Christmas time. How do you get from great fear to great joy with some good news? And the good news has to do with this child that's been born. But also, this idea of great fear, because we seem to live with that. The older we get, the more we worry about things. We don't worry about much when we're children. In fact, when we hear older folks talking about their worries, it doesn't really interest young people that much. They've got plenty to do and all the time in the world. But as time slips away, we begin to think about things in a different way. Every time anyone in the scriptures came in contact or close proximity with God or even an angel, great fear was always the response. And that's what's so intriguing about the transfiguration. Because up until that point, Jesus didn't look like God in any way at all. In fact, any time he said he was God, people got angry and in time they wanted to stone him. Or crucify him for blasphemy. There's no way you're God. You look like anyone else. And we've known you. And really, wouldn't you say the last people in the world you would ask if you yourself wanted to see how far you could get by claiming yourself to be God? Let's just say one week, I'm going to see if I can convince anyone that I'm actually God. The last people you would go pull up as witnesses to support your case would be your family, right? 
You want to convince your neighbor that you're God? Here, just talk to my family. They'll tell you I am. No, they'll tell you you're not. It's just the way it works. So Jesus says his family is... This, he, he's the prophet in his own town that's not respected. So only after a transfiguration did great fear fall on the men that were closest to him. This really is God. And then after his resurrection, well, the whole world was turned upside down. But if you want to ask, what is this good news that can overcome great fear? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The Savior is the good news. To be saved from peril. And not only that, but this Savior is the Christ, the promised Messiah. That's the good news. God has come. That's what we read in Titus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. Because He's a Savior, that's what saviors do. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And here's where the imagination is invited to spread its wings. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's why I chose to use the ESV. This is a more modern day accurate rendering in English words what we have in Greek. What we've known for so long, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We've almost substituted that as a euphemism for the Christmas spirit, right? Where everybody's being nice to one another. And uh, all the good Christmas movies end with all the mean people being nice to everybody. If just for Christmas Eve, so Santa can get his sleigh in the air, or the tree will light, or somebody will come home who's been away. That's just the way the industry around Christmas works, right? Well, this means more than just everybody uh, lathering up in the Christmas spirit. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So in the company of perhaps what it was like when uh, the prophet asked that his servant's eyes be opened to the third dimension and he saw the great host of army there in the Old Testament on the hill... This one messenger now is accompanied by a whole host, a heavenly host, praising God and saying, Peace among those whom he is pleased, or with those in whom he's pleased. So this good news of a Savior and this announcement is closed with the promise of peace. So peace has something to do with answering that question Okay, we understand what happened at Christmas, but why? A Savior to save us from our sins. That's the function of the Messiah. Okay, that fits into the why of Christmas. But just to examine that peace a bit more. Peace with God hasn't existed since the Garden of Eden. Peace, peace does not naturally exist between men or God and man. That's all been something that has been a, 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 a symptom of the curse that was pronounced after Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God cursed the man, the woman, the snake, the ground, childbirth, 
and we have been at enmity with snakes and each other and with God separated from him chased out of the garden peace doesn't exist not like we long for it to not like we know it should and ultimately it's peace with God that just does not exist so this is good news this would be something brand new at least since the garden peace not only that but peace cannot be established by our own endeavor either we're lost in our trespasses and sins we can't fix ourselves we're stuck that way uh, there is none that seeketh God there's none righteous no not one and worse than that the wages of that sin is death but here we get into what the Christmas question is answered by but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so if you start adding some of these dots, if we're drawing a picture, connecting the dots, the, the dots connect and we answer the question, why Christmas? This Savior that's part of the good news as a function of the Messiah's work was also to be that peacemaker who's going to broker peace between the world and the God who made them. That's what's actually being set up. It won't be finished until Easter when Jesus pays for the sins of the world on the cross, dies in their place. And he says with his own words, it is finished. But what is started at Christmas, finished at Easter, is the process of making peace between man and God. So to say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a peacemaker who is Christ the Messiah, what the Jesus Storybook Bible described as the one on whom everything would depend. Well, now we're getting close to answering that question emphatically. It would be easy to slide through this as we do each year. But if we'll just take the time to think through, maybe even step aside the story for a moment. So let me read to you another Advent passage. It's read at Christmas time, but you probably wouldn't put it in the stack of Christmas passages as you know them. This began a lot like John's Gospel's introduction, which is also a passage we read at Advent because it's talking about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. That's Christmas. And this first John sounds a whole lot like the beginning of John's Gospel. But just let me read it to you. This is the first four verses of First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the words of life. Now John wrote this much later in life. He's an old man now. It's been some time since he wrote the Gospel of John. But then he writes three little letters we call 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And as an old man, it's interesting to see in a much shorter book what he spends his time on. What's on John's heart as an older man? Well, he begins to rehearse the thing that changed his life. And the way he describes it, almost as a deposition uh, in, in factual terms that you would admit in a court as a witness to support a claim 
Verse 2, he says, The life was made manifest or made known, and we have seen it, testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made known to us. What is he talking about? He's talking about the man he lived with for three years. Jesus, the Word, the life, the light, the way, the truth. The same man. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. He acts as if he knows God, doesn't he? He does. He met him in the flesh. That's why it sounds like he's pushing this emphatically, dramatically. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. His joy isn't complete until everybody he can possibly tell about this good news, this Jesus. And that's why he writes. So what does it mean? If we just took from this passage, what does the story of Christmas mean? Well, John would tell you it means that God went to infinite lengths to make sure that he made himself known to you. You ever thought of that? You ever thought that that's what the purpose of Christmas is? So that you can know God? I mean, just look at the way John describes this. On the basis of his personal testimony is something that can be seen, heard, and touched with one's hands. As if to say, it's real. It's not a fairy tale. I touched the Son of God with my hands. I heard His voice with my ears. I saw His body with my eyes. They would actually see that body crushed and killed. They would see that body on the other side of death, risen again. You can expect that this made an impression on them. And this is what none of the other religions on the planet have anything in common with. All of those try to tell you, hey, this is the instruction sheet for you to make your way toward God. And if you do it right, you might have a chance. Where the Christmas story tells us it's the opposite of that. Nobody's qualified to work their way to God. God's going to do what has to be done. He's going to come down to you. You know, we worry about, okay, some modern age. Which is more appropriate? Should, should the guy ask the girl out on the date or should the girl ask the guy out on the date? And every now and then you've got a grandmother who says, I've got to get involved here. It's good, too good a deal to pass up. The boy's just not going to ask because he doesn't have it in him. You've got to ask him, even though that's not the way that it should go. Pitiful illustration, but it just wasn't going to happen. We're not looking for God. We ran away from him as soon as we sinned. He's been looking for us. And that's what Christmas is about that's what John is telling us here and notice how John describes it he's saying that it's real and I think that might be the key to convincing us because how does a God who's so removed from his creation introduce himself you just think your way through it. How does that happen? There's this amazing gulf between the Creator and the creation. How does He get it through? Does He write it in the clouds? Or does He come Himself? 
You know, they're a scientist. Guys with degrees, very smart. Who would tell you, although they do not functionally live in accordance with what they would tell you, but what they would tell you is that everything that, that is most important to you, the most meaningful parts of your existence, are really just chemical reactions and electrical impulses in your brain. That the emotion that you feel, uh, whether it be anger or joy, delight, love, sorrow, all the things that combine together to make you who you are, your personality, all your memories, things that have happened in the past, good ones and bad ones, they would tell you that when that metabolic motor of yours ceases to function, when the neurotransmitters use electrical signals to fire in your brain, that all of those things will cease to exist. They'll be erased. That none of those things are real. It's not true. Because not even those guys, when they go home, if they've got sense to say what should be said at birthdays, anniversaries, or Christmases, or writing cards, they don't say, I'll love you until the end of my metabolic motor. <laughs> they say, I'll love you forever, right? Because deep down we know there's, there's got to be more to this than what we see, right? 30 years ago, a little more, there's a fellow who wrote a book. And it was a children's book. His name is Robert uh, Munch. And this children's book that he wrote would go on to be a, a bestseller. Uh, but not at the beginning. In fact, his publisher, and he'd published many books before that, decided that it wasn't a good complement to the rest of his work. And he, uh, he declined to publish it. So he used his distributor get it published. And when it began to sell, it took off rather quickly, and since then it sold 15 million copies. Many of you might have a copy. You might recognize it if I mention its name. I'll love you forever. And uh, it has to do with a short little poem, which is sung as a song, and that's what the book is wrapped around. You might know it already. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. And it starts out with this mother who brings a little boy home and she rocks him to sleep. And she sings this song. But as the book continues, the little boy grows older. You can already tell this is the stuff that really good books are made out of, right? So when he's two years old and running all around the house and tearing everything to pieces, she puts him to bed by rocking him and singing this very same song. And you keep going through the book. The child grows through adolescence. And I think it describes weird hair and weird clothes and weird friends. But she'll sneak into his room and sing this song as she puts him to bed whether or not he's asleep. And then in young adulthood and growing up and getting married and having his own kids, it's, it's the same thing. She doesn't refuse the opportunity to sing through this song. And then the last part of the book, 
the virgin is switched because she, as it's described, is too old and sick to sing the song. So the last little picture's got this mother in this man's arms and he sings the song. My baby you'll be. Now, many people know this book, but they far fewer know the story that goes behind the book and how it was written. Uh, this man would perform in front of audiences at theaters or universities, and that's the way he would write his books. He would tell stories enough times in front of people that eventually he had something together that he could put in a book. But with this story, this little poem was how it got started, and he carried that little poem around forever, telling no one about it. He put that poem together after him and his wife said goodbye to a stillborn child. And actually, that was the second one. They had lost two babies this way. And after which, the doctors had told them, you won't be able to have children. And he would tell others later, now, what do you do with a guy who's got a degree in child studies, who works in an orphanage, writes children's books, but doesn't have any children? And he had since adopted three children. But this little poem, he intended to put to music, but he said, every time I tried to put music to it, I would cry. So that little poem was the way I would cry and the way I would grieve for this loss in my life. So in one of these things where he's talking in a bunch of, in front of a bunch of people publicly, he said, for the first time I felt like I could talk about it. And out it came with its tune and the contents for the book all at one time. When some of his books took months, this one happened extemporaneously in front of a crowd and in front of his wife who'd never heard the poem before. And then he gets it published and then it sells a bunch of copies. But the distributor said, here's the strange thing about it. This book sold most copies in Arizona in a retirement complex where children weren't allowed to live. And he said, in fact, older people buy this book for other older people. Grandparents buy it for grandparents, or grandparents buy it for their children. But very few parents buy it for their children, almost as if they're not old enough to somehow connect with the sorrow that some of us feel from a longing that seems to be stamped on us that'll never go away as long as we live. The longing to love and be loved, even perhaps out of tragedy. So that's the story of this man and his book. And I'd like to ask that question to the guy who tells me that none of that stuff is real. When obviously it seems to be. So perhaps in some way, the way God gets the point across to a group of people, all of which he created, is to come down here himself, not in a royal robe, but in swaddling clothes, to be rocked in the arms of a woman who would later watch him die. But to say, 
to augment the terms just a bit. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. Well, it's more than that. As long as I'm living, he always has and he always will. My creation you'll be. I'm going to come here because I don't want to spend eternity without you knowing me and me knowing you. You see, the reason why it's real, the reason why we love, is not because it involved as a process of some survival of the fittest in our species. Love was brought here. Love was part of being created in the image of God. God has loved from eternity past. It's Him, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When they made man and woman, they gave love. And when sin came into the picture... The picture of love was marred, and we've since had trouble loving. In fact, some of the ones we love the most, we hurt the deepest. Is that not true? That's what's going to make some of the next few days complicated for some of you. And the older you are, probably the more readily you admit that. But Jesus came to take us back to the garden, to restore love to the way it was meant to be. That's part of salvation. That's part of peacemaking. And when it's all done, he'll say what he said to begin with. This is good. That's what Christmas means. So do you believe this? Do you believe it's real? Does your heart tell you it's real? Do you believe that every story in the Bible whispers this child's name? then receive with gladness the gift of Christmas by declaring your dependence, not independence, dependence on the child upon whom everything would depend. Now let's end the way we started and we're going to sing a hymn, a theologically rich, well-known Christmas carol. But before we do, I want to read the verse we read to start with, and then I want to pray for you. And then we'll sing, we'll light a candle, and we'll part ways. But when the goodness and loving kindness, because that's what this candle is, the candle of love. When the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let's all close our eyes. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to pray for us, for you, for your Christmas, for your family. But I wonder if any of you would say, well, I've got something on my heart a little heavier than usual and Christmas might make it a little heavier than usual and before you pray I want to raise my hand and ask that you include me specifically in that prayer not by name but just to say me too raise your hand so I can see it All right, let's pray Father in heaven what a privilege it is to pray at Christmas time, to a God that we can say we know because of Christmas, because you came down and introduced yourself 
and then introduced us to God. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, pleasure, the love and kindness that we share with each other and those that are most important to us over the next few days. These are precious gifts that you've given to us. But Lord, I ask that we not ignore you, that we are gracious, that we show our gratitude, that you give us the love that we don't have ourselves, the love of God to love each other with, words of kindness, acts of kindness. Lord, bless our time together as your creation that will always be. We ask your blessing on our Christmas, our families. And Lord, for those that don't know you yet, give us an opportunity and the courage to walk through the door. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.